Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's good, Podcastville? You found the bystander, and I am your host, Tiny Tim. Thank you to Blue Canary for your sponsorship and Sound Reaper Graphics in the Pavilion. You as a listener can also support the show on Patreon.com. Today, my guest is Bill Marler. Bill, what's cracking? How are you doing today? It's good. Good to see you. Yeah, twice now. Twice now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry about having to postpone it the first time. Oh, no worries. No worries. It's, hey. not, it's not that big of an island. No. Um, <laughs> Let me get that mic a little closer to you. Make sure that people hear you loud and proud. Um, so this clown Jack, how is he still in business? <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's almost 30 years ago, almost to the day when I filed the first lawsuit against Jack in the Box and the E. coli outbreak. And, you know, I, I really – to answer your question as to why they're still in business – even though the thing was a disaster, 700 people sick, four kids dead, about 75 with acute kidney failure. The one thing that, you know, the lawyers and the company and the insurance companies sort of did is they realized that the only way to survive was to try to do the right thing. And one, after a while, you know, the cases all got resolved. But the other thing that was really important, they brought in really high quality food safety people. Um, that really sort of completely changed the dynamic of the beef industry as it related to fast food restaurants. And so I think it was a combination of, you know, doing the right thing for taking care of the victims and, you know, doing the right thing by becoming a leader in food safety. I mean, it doesn't take away the horror of what happened and, you know, the how screwed up they were and how they were doing things before the outbreak. But, you know, that's, I think, a lesson for a lot of companies to, you know, when something like that happens, how you respond to it. That's, you know, I think really it's, important. Yeah. Yeah. It's real important. Yeah. I mean, I think of the Jack in the Box case and the Tylenol case mm-hmm. um, as business busters, basically, mm-hmm. where I do not know how Tylenol and Jack in the Box stayed in business because at the time, no one was going to eat at Jack in the Box oh, for no. years and years and years. Oh. And the whole 
where's the beef, bring back the clown, get right. rid of the clown. They Blow would, the clown up. And I mean, it was just, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they struggled for a long time. And, but I think had they, had they not resolved the claims, you know, um, I mean, certainly the litigation went on for years. I mean, I, I, I was deposing people and going through documents for years until we found out exactly what happened. And, but, you know, once we knew that, <clears throat> You know, the game was over for them. And I think ultimately they did the right thing. And a lot of companies, you know, don't do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of them don't. Yeah. They they take the L and keep, <clears throat> keep it moving. Um, let me point that mic a little closer to you. Um, so was that one of your biggest cases or your first case that was a, really caught <clears throat> attention? Yeah. Well, sort of. Um, I had um, – I'd been practicing law for like four years. Um, I had had a pretty <clears throat> high-profile case a couple years earlier. Um, I actually represented the murder victims of a guy named Wesley Allen Dodd who killed three little boys um, in the in the eighties. <clears throat> that was in Washington State, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I had been hired by the family. Some somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody hired me. And I dug into it and found that that the state of Washington uh, had uh, messed up and had let the guy out of a prison um, incorrectly. He should have been in prison, um, but they it was a clerical error, and so they let him go. And that's when he went out and he murdered those three boys. And so I sued the state of Washington. It was a pretty, you know, pretty high profile case, and. That was sort of the first case that, you know, I did that I think was, you know, the public kind of noticed that, you know, what was going on. And I think that kind of led to the opportunity to represent some of the victims in the Jack in the Box case. And, you know, I started off with one case, filing that lawsuit January 28th, 1993. And, you know, within a week, you know, I had a hundred cases and then the, you know, the real significant injured kids came through and I started representing them and the litigation, like, like I said earlier, went on for, you know, until early 1995 until we uncovered a bunch of documents that showed that uh, Jack in the Box knew about that they were undercooking their hamburgers and were undercooking them anyway. And so, you know, I think that was pretty seminal in getting the case, you know, resolved. I mean, what's what's the win for Jack Jack in a Box to continue to know something like that and continue to operate like that? Um, it was they were so fixated on the two minute cook time mm. that they that they were a fast food restaurant, and I I won't say it's they should we should understand, but state of Washington had increased the internal temperature of hamburgers from 140 to 155. The, there's a nationwide food code and you can, uh, the FDA puts it out. Um, and that's sort of the minimum standard that everyone has to abide by. But individual states can increase the standards. They can't decrease them. State of Washington was kind of on the cutting edge of worrying about E. coli and especially in hamburger. We'd had a couple of like small outbreaks of ground beef and E. coli in the state of Washington. So our Department of Health, our Department of Health had stepped up 
had changed that food code, had disseminated all that information out to Jack in the Box and all other restaurants in the state of Washington. Um, Jack in the Box claimed that they didn't know about it, but through the through the ability to put people under oath and get documents and stuff, we learned that they did know about it. They tested to see if they could do it, and they realized that the only way they could do it was to <clears throat> increase the time that you were cooking the hamburger from two minutes to two minutes and 15 seconds because it's a time temperature thing that mm-hmm. cooks something. And so they real they just said, no, 15 minutes or 15 seconds, it's just not worth it. 49 other states don't require it, but the state of Washington does, and they just blew it off. Instead of asking themselves, gee, why is the state of Washington doing this? Gee, they must be concerned about public health. They just sort of, you know, two minutes was sacrosanct. It was, you know, the -the jack-in-the-box Bible, and it caused 700 people to get sick, four kids to die, and you know, about 75 children uh, suffer acute kidney failure. So, and it costs Jack in the Box, you know, $130 million. They got off easy. Yeah. 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 Um, so you're, you're kind of legendary when it comes to foodborne illness. I'm sure you didn't set out to be just the, the food guy. <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> no. In fact, I have to tell you a funny story. Um, it's probably 2000. Must have been 2007. I was, uh, I do a lot of, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time litigating, but I also do a lot of uh, working on legislation. And uh, so I spend a lot of time in, in the other Washington. And I was in DC, it was 2007, and I was meeting with uh, Senator uh, Durbin. <clears throat> and it was sort of the beginning of sort of the formulation of the Food Safety Modernization Act. And I was meeting with Durbin for a while, and then I walked out of his office, and I'm walking down the hallway. And um, as I'm walking down the hallway, Barack Obama's office is right was right there as a senator. And he walks out with a couple of aides <clears throat> kind of, you know, right in front of me. And we walk down towards the elevator into the in the Senate office buildings. So we get in the elevator, and, you know, like I'm standing there, you know, and, um, he's just a senator. He, has, he hasn't he hasn't decided to run for president yet, and so I'm standing there and and uh, I said, "Hey, uh, Senator uh, Obama, nice to meet you." And he says, "So what are you doing in here?" And he goes, "What do you?" And I said, "I'm a lawyer." And, and he goes, "I was meeting with with uh, Dick Durbin," and he goes, "Where are you from?" I go, "Seattle." And he goes, "Oh, I know you. You're the E. coli guy." Mm. So, yeah. So I mean, it. I didn't start off to do this, but. Um, you know, once the Jack in the Box case ended, um, I thought I'd just go back to, you know, chasing whatever ambulance came by. And, you know, what happened, <laughs> <clears throat> what happened is, you know, the, there was the Odwalla juice E. coli outbreak. You know, there were salmonella outbreaks. Yeah, tell me about the Odwalla because I'm a big fan of Odwalla. Well, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, the boathouse is now the, the thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Odwalla was, <clears throat> was good for a while. So the Odwalla Juice Company had started off as essentially some guys out of the out of their VW van at Grateful Dead concerts making juice. And it became more and more popular, especially in San Francisco area. And they started this company and then they got funding. And the whole idea behind the juice company was it was natural. It was not, not pasteurized. Not right? pasteurized. It was natural, and 
and they had great, you know, marketing and stuff. Well, the problem with unpasteurized juice is, is if a pathogen gets in it, it's like a really great place to grow the pathogen. And so, um, in 1996, um, Adwala had tried to sell their juice to the U.S. Army, um, not as a biological weapon, but as a, <laughs> as a, as as juice to be sold on, you know, uh, PXs on on base uh, grocery stores, and the Army came out and did um, an inspection of the plant and did a bunch of testing, and they wrote. Adwalan said, your juice is not fit for human consumption. We will not buy it. Wow. So that's six months before the outbreak. And they continue to sell it to pregnant women and little kids. And the outbreak blew up. About 100 people got sick. One little kid died in Colorado. And there were about 20 kids that suffered acute kidney failure. And so, of course, you know, did Adwala give me that document? No. But we got a, a whistleblower who came forward with the Army documents, and that spelt the end of at least the Adwala as a company uh, and then Coca-Cola Bottom. Um, shortly thereafter, I think it was like 97, 98, they Coca-Cola Bottom. And then they just, I, I guess it, just in the last year or two, they disbanded, disbanded the brand. But – yeah, it's interesting, and and the funny thing is, is that uh, the, the um, former president of uh, of Adwala has a connection here on Bainbridge Island um, as a uh, uh, a patron and a board member uh, out at the uh, Environmental Learning Center and the little college they have out there for Islandwood. Uh, yeah, Islandwood or whatever. Yeah, so and and I was at a fundraiser out there one time, and you know, I mean, I I, I didn't. No, he was there, but I got introduced to his wife, and I was like, "That's a really interesting name." I used to, I knew this guy, and she looked at me, and she then she realized who I was. Uh, it's a little uncomfortable. I so. totally would have had foot and mouth disease. Yeah, running yeah. into the dude. Yeah, because I religiously gave that to my kid when he was a young uh, toddler. Yeah, so I, I thought a lot that of was... lot of parents did, a lot of parents did, you know, and you know, in <clears throat> in 1996. You know, was unpasteurized juice, you know, as known of a risk? I think probably not. But, you know, when you're doing it in a commercial setting like that, where you're shipping it all across the Western United States, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's a high risk item. It's different than, you know, not to say that I would, but, you know, if there was a, you know, a, a fall fair here and they were squeezing apple juice, you know, off the, you know, would I drink the juice? Probably not. Is it like as high a risk as a commercial product like Adwala was? No. You know, I mean, it's like highly unlikely, but you're going to get sick. But pasteurization exists for, for a for reason. reason. Yeah. So. And, geez. And sourcing of where all the fruit comes from has got to be a difficult task to uh, understand this orange came from this grove or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, it's better today than it was, you know. 30 years ago, you know, we're better at tracking things. There's a lot more technology available, but you know, um, do you think there's a large part, um, because of the actions that you've done? Um, I think, I think in some respects, yeah. I mean, I don't want to take, 
you know. Oh, you're a bit of, of a pioneer in the, I, in I the don't food think, industry. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think I want to take too much responsibility. But the one th- reason why I think <laughs> I was thinking credit, not responsibility. <laughs> yeah, I was. I you know the I think the fact that you know these are chains of distribution. You know, and normally when something goes sideways, it's the end product manufacturer that gets hit either with a recall, with a lawsuit or with, you know, some kind of fine from the government. So that entity does have, you know, let's say it's Adwala, that that entity does have an interest in being able to point the finger back upstream. So I think the fact that, you know, we've, you know, successfully sued companies who manufacture food products, there's there's an economic self-interest in why they want to be able to identify where they got the product from. And I think in the long run, part part of the reason is they want some economic, you know, money from the they want something back from these folks. But they also, you know, over time it helps, you know, the FDA understand or the USDA understand why the outbreak happened. You know, if you can like in you know, we have very common leafy green romaine lettuce E. coli outbreaks. There's a lot more traceability now so we can trace where that lettuce head almost at least the lettuce box where it came from and we've been able to determine that in most of the outbreaks that have occurred in the last decade most of them were because they were these this lettuce was grown nearby a bunch of cows like okay that totally makes sense but to have that data have that data is helpful to hopefully craft your new public policy. So, well, a lot of the irrigation is like <clears throat> cow feces water that yeah. they're spraying on the on the farms. Well, it's it's that has gotten a little bit better with some of the rules from the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed into law in 2011. Um, we still have we still have a long, long way to go. I mean, there's you know I've. I just wrote a an op-ed uh, up to the FDA about, you know, putting me out of business. Um, they still have a long way to go, uh, you know, to get me there. Um, yeah, you're fighting with them still, right? Oh, I fight with the <laughs> I fight with the FDA all the time. So, I mean, I, you know, one of the things I think it's important to understand is is that the, these are not insoluble problems. Um, you know, back when the Jack in the Box case hit, and for a couple of you know, be five, six, seven years afterwards, 90% of my law firm's revenue and the work we did was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Um, those don't happen anymore. They don't. Why is that the case? Well, government stepped in and said, you can't sell E. coli contaminated hamburger. By law, you cannot do that. That didn't exist before Jack in the Box. It didn't exist before that legislation. So that changed, you know, sort of the you know, the, the rule and then the industry and consumers, restaurants had to step up to sort of make that all work. And the, the reality is, is that, you know, it's worked. I mean, the only person who's maybe pissed off about the fact that less people get sick from E. coli and hamburger is my accountant. So, you know, it's it's but it is, has changed. So I always tell industry <clears throat> government that, you know, all regulation isn't great and there's all kinds of, you know, issues and 
trying to think through how legislation or regulation will work. But in the food space, you know, setting standards and, and making people accountable for those standards does make things safer. It does. And, you know. The, the beef is a little different than the vegetables because you rarely grill up a, a romaine head of lettuce. You know, it, it is good, you know, with some balsamic and some feta <laughs> or goat cheese on, on the grill. But uh, when you start cooking beef, you have you have ability to get rid of that E. coli by cooking it off. Right. So, so I mean, not to say that not to say that leafy greens don't have a bigger challenge. I mean, because there's no kill step, that's absolutely true. But um, you know, I could show you countless photographs of you know uh, lettuce being grown in Yuma, lettuce being grown in Salinas, where you know you and I could like take a rock and throw it from the cow feces to the, the lettuce field. Hmm. This is not, you know, it's not rocket science as to why these things continue to happen. And they continue to happen because, you know, this, the leafy greens, which are, you know, very popular are grown in close proximity to, to cow shit. I mean, yeah, that's what it is. And it seems like uh, the ones that are most dominant are romaine and spinach. Yep. Can, over and over they're constantly offending. Yep. Yeah. And so, and the, you know, the industry and the government have done, you know, baby steps, but, you know, we still have these outbreaks. There's, there are outbreaks that are still going on. There's probably one going on right now that we may or may not ever be aware of because, you know, there's a lot of leafy green outbreaks that, never get reported because by the time they figure out that there was an outbreak, the leafy greens are long out of the marketplace. And so the FDA thinks it's their responsibility to not tell the public that because there's no risk anymore because that product is gone. So there's a lot. And I know about these outbreaks because I get sick people come to me and, you know, we investigate these mm -hmm. outbreaks and we know they happen. Um, you know, but the CDC and FDA, don't necessarily make those public among other things. <laughs> <laughs> so there's quite a, quite a plethora of different foodborne illnesses. Um, how versed are you in, in each, each of them like salmonella and I, e. coli I and probably know way too much about, you know, I could, there are 2000 varieties of salmonella, you know, about 35 of them cause human illness that we know of. You know, E. coli, <clears throat> you know, the, the bad one is E. coli 0157, but we've learned that there are several other shigatoxin-producing E. coli's that cause human illness. Um, I petitioned the USDA back in 2008, no, 2010, to expand what's considered adulteration to other forms of E. coli and got them to do that. I'm presently working on a petition to ban salmonella from chicken. Uh, you know, it's right now the industry knowingly can sell content. They can test it, find that it has salmonella on it and knowingly ship it, knowingly sell cancerous it. chickens, the whole champagne. Yeah, they can do that. And so the chicken industry folks is ugly. It's really, it's and and Mor have, Morgan Spurlock. Have you seen oh, his yeah. Uh, yeah. second movie? Yeah. Uh, what the cluck or whatever yeah. it is called. Yeah. Morgan's a great guy. So. That's that's one of those movies that makes you never want to eat chicken again. 
Yeah, I, I think when this the new documentary Poison comes out, I think you might have the same same feeling about chicken, at least from a bacteriological point of view as well. So, what's left to eat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I look. I always look at it like what you know. What are the thing you know, the, sort of the higher risk things, and you know, I think almost every person in the food safety world, it sprouts are like the top of the list of things to avoid. Now you're uh, killing me because yeah. I'm such a broccoli <clears throat> sprout. You know, the, freak. the, uh, you know, leafy greens, especially bagged, uh, chop, you know, leafy greens, uh, unpasteurized juice, unpasteurized milk, you know, under still undercooking, you know, chicken, undercooking hamburger, you know, those are the risky items. Um, you know, it's probably sacrilege to say oysters, but oysters have become oysters have become. You're more, killing me right now. <laughs> yeah, no, oysters have become more and more problematic um, as we've had. What's been, the foodborne illness that an oyster gets? Uh, there's lots of different ones: hepatitis A, vibrio. We've seen you know uh, some uh, norovirus. So I mean those those things happen. It's it's all essentially. Norovirus and hepatitis are human feces problems. So if uh, if the like up in uh, you know off Vancouver Island, um, you know the city of Victoria until recently would just they didn't have very high quality uh, sewage treatment for the city, and they just dumped raw sewage out into the bay. And so every once in a while, depending upon the tides. They would go up to where those, some of those really great oyster beds are, and you'd get a norovirus outbreak. You'd get a hepatitis outbreak. So, But if I have my COVID vaccine, I'm okay? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> Where's yeah. the CDs, CDC when I need them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, part of it is, you know, there's some studies about, you know, how the warming of the water may yeah. also be causing – these issues as you want well. tide flow when it comes to yeah, you want shellfish. Tide flow. Yeah. I had a hepatitis A outbreak <clears throat> linked to uh, scallops at a sushi restaurant in Hawaii, uh, sickened 300 people, killed a woman. Um, yeah. It's, and they all came from, they all came from Manila Bay. So. Wow. You are crashing my party right now because we're talking about some of my favorite foods. I know. That's why no one ever invites me to dinner. Like, we had some friends. <laughs> I know. What the hell are we going to cook <laughs> no, for you? Well, well, see, normally it's like we invite people over to our house because, you know, then they feel like it must be safe. But you Did you know, wash the hell out of your food? Uh, well, you just cook it, you know. But we had scallops last night. We had some yeah. friends over. We had scallops and short ribs and had a, had a great meal. So, but uh, – yeah, but oysters, I love oysters, I love sprouts, and yeah. I eat sushi three or four times a week, Yeah, and I'm just, I'm on the edge of it, you know, because I well, consciously, I'm thinking, you know, I'm eating raw food, and it says right on the menu, may, mm -hmm. may cause foodborne illness, So, and I still do it. So, Why? Yeah, so, you know, fish, raw fish from a good rest, sushi restaurant it's pretty low risk. I mean, there's, you know, it's it's pretty low risk, you know, situation. Um, you know, I think it's just, um, I had a, <laughs> uh, I had a sushi salmonella outbreak, and it was linked to a product called uh, uh, tuna scrape. Seriously, tuna scrape. And what this stuff was was 
these large factory trawlers out in the Pacific Ocean would catch these tuna and they would, you know, fillet them and then the carcasses, they just keep them in the freezer. And then when the, when the, uh, the uh, ship went back to get retrofitted and they happened to do, be doing it in India, um, they would take these, these carcasses of the tuna and they'd have people scraping the tuna scrape, scrape the meat off the bones, put them in plastic bags, freeze them and ship them back to the United States where they wound up in, you know, sushi rolls in seven elevens or do not eat sushi <laughs> at seven eleven. So I actually represented this this kid who was the Jesus Christ. He was the lead he was the lead <laughs> singer. He was a lead singer in a band called Attila, which was a hard rock band. I don't know if it still exists, but his his name was his name Franzak, and he they called him the Franz, of course. Anyway, he got he ate some. He was on a tour, bus tour, and stopped and get some sushi at a Seven Eleven and got really sick. That's not <clears> even <throat> an option. Seven Eleven is not an option. Um, so, how does salmonella appear, and is it only a, a meat? type disease or can you get salmonella so, on vegetables as well? Yeah, salmonella is a animal bacterium that is found in all kinds of animals. Um, you know, it can be uh, it can be found in snakes, it can be on frogs, uh, you know, uh, lizards, it can be found, you know, in chickens, it can be found in beef. It, and each of the subtypes in the animal while it's alive, is yeah, that yeah, yeah. It's in the fe- it's in the feces of the animal, so it's a fecal pathogen, just like um, like E. coli O one five seven is a fecal pathogen. Other bacteria like Listeria, which is a super deadly uh, pathogen, Listeria is a environmental pathogen. It's like everywhere. It's in the soil. But what happens is it'll get into a uh, into a cool, wet environment like a, a, you know, a deli processing facility, a cheese making facility, lettuce, and it'll get in there and it grows really well at refrigerator temperatures, and so it it will you know populate and then get into you know the food, get into your refrigerator, and you know for listeria, about ninety nine percent of the people who consume something with listeria on it will get hospitalized and about a third of them will die. I, I represented about a hundred people who ate cantaloupe uh, back in 2011 um, and 33 of them died here in the United States. And so um, it's a, it's a very deadly, it's a potentially very, very deadly pathogen. Keep your eye on me. Cause I had cantaloupe this morning. Oh, great. Well, the incubation period for listeria is three to 70 days. So be, you might have to move in. So you'll just have to wait. Days, you just have yeah. to wait and see, you know, wait, 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 wait it out. Oh my God. Besides killing my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me some fun stories um, about some cases that were unique to you and, and foodborne illness. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> you know, after 30 years, there've been so many, um, you know, I, I think a lot about, some of the people who I've represented and I obviously that I tend to kind of stay in touch with a lot of them, 
especially the really morally more severely injured folks. Um, I represented this uh, one of the most tragic stories, and uh, it made the front page of the New York Times. And the writer Mike Moss, who's gone on to become a well-respected writer, uh, got a Pulitzer for it. Uh, and it was a story of a, a young woman, twenty-year-old uh, dance instructor, who ate a hamburger um, and became paralyzed, brain damaged, and paralyzed. And so, absolutely, just completely changed the course of her life and you know she you know lives in a group home and you know she's well cared for but you know the way her life was going to be is not how it is and it was just because of a hamburger um you know i represented a woman where'd uh, that hamburger come from uh it was came from uh cargill uh and sold at walmart it was frozen those frozen patties you buy in a box um, I don't buy those, <laughs> but that's what you, that's yeah. And uh, you know, there was a outbreak, uh, uh, linked to Nestle toll house cookie dough back no. in 09. And, Killing some of my favorites. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, uh, woman was hospitalized for two years, had over $7 million in medical expenses, um, and lost her large intestine, uh, was on, constant dialysis um you know was able to get out of the hospital but then when she had her from bowel, cookie dough from cookie dough e coli from cookie dough don't eat raw cookie dough kids yeah yeah don't eat raw cookie dough it's actually nestle told us it the what it was was surprisingly it was it was they had pasteurized the milk they had pasteurized the butter they had pasteurized the chocolate everything was pasteurized in nestle told us cookie dough except the egg the flour flour and the and flour has been in the last five or six years. Raw flour has been linked to several E. coli outbreaks. So, wow, yeah. you you probably drop knowledge for hours here on this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's it can be it can be a little overwhelming and can be a little depressing, um, which is I think why you know I I spend you know probably. 40% of my time, uh, uh, this was pre-COVID and even post-COVID, uh, probably 40% of my time I spend talking to industry and government, consumer groups about why it's a bad idea to poison people. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, and I've, I've had the really great opportunity to speak all over the world, in China, Australia, Europe, uh, Asia, Africa. Yeah. And, you know, the, you're ripe for a Ted talk. Yeah. No, I mean, I've been doing this. I, I mean, last week, last week. Yeah. Last week I was in, um, Florida, uh, had been invited to speak at a, at a group, uh, uh, of actuaries and, uh, insurance people. And what they were interested in doing is seeing if they could charge more premiums and, to try to get companies to pay more attention to food safety so they could charge more premiums, teach them about food safety, and then they wouldn't have outbreaks that then they wouldn't have to pay out claims. And you think about it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. And I was like, you know, if I can help them by telling the stories and showing what things worked and what things didn't work, and they can get companies – 
to make good decisions, that's a good thing, you know? And so, so I, I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, and I think that at least gives me some sense that all of this is for something, you know, that, that it's that, worthwhile. Yeah. That we can, we can make change. And as long as, because the thing about human behavior is you never know what that thing is. It's going to make it happen. You don't know. Yeah. What's the tipping point? Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. All right. So I'm at home, got my refrigerator, freezer, my stove, my cutting board. Um, what are some habits that I might be overlooking in my food prep on a daily basis in my house? So, I mean, one of the things that, um, uh, especially as we get older, um, lazier or older, older, like older, <laughs> yeah. yeah, older, older, um, you know, you, you know, the, the high risk groups are the very young, the older, older folks, which and I just turned 65. So I guess I, I get in that category and then, um, and pregnant women, those are the sort of the big risk items. Obviously, older people, also you know, potentially people with immune compromised situations, HIV/AIDS, or you know, had undergone chemotherapy and radiation stuff. So it's a pretty big subset of the population who mm-hmm. are immune compromised in one form or another. So one of the things that you know, I, I think we pay attention to, or at least try to, um, is. You know, making sure that the products, especially like cheese and deli meats and, uh, you know, cut fruits and vegetables, don't just hang around in your refrigerator for a long period of time. Um, primarily because if they are contaminated with listeria, refrigerator temperature is like a perfect growing temperature for listeria. Not so for some of the other pathogens. So the reason why we created refrigeration to begin with was to keep foods longer and it also suppresses bacterial growth in things like E. coli and salmonella, cool temperatures. That's why keep cold things cold and hot things hot. That's, you know, why like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, delis, delis or, you know, or maybe even the TNC salad bars, maybe not the, greatest place to go. But in any event, um, you know, paying attention to the cleanliness of your refrigerator as a base, uh, that you're not keeping products in there long, too long. I think that's really important. Um, clean it often. Yeah. 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 And so, and you know, a lot of times, especially if my wife's out of town, I'll go through there and like throw a bunch of the cheese away that I think it's been there too long, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, paying attention to those sorts of basics, I think. Because cheese is bacteria, so it would only make sense that it would continue to grow other bacteria. But a lot of times, too, is that the bacteria in cheese pushes out some of the normal bacteria in cheese, pushes out some of the pathogens. But it's it's a kind of a numbers game between listeria and good good bacteria. Um, So, you know, that's, I think, is key. You know, washing your hands, you know separating cutting boards, you know, paying attention to, you know, what you're touching. And, you know, if it's, especially if it's a raw product like chicken, um, immediately wash your hands, immediately wash your hands. Don't wash your chicken. Don't wash your Turkey. A lot of people do that. It's what that that's kind of a new thing. And then there was a misnomer that you should wash your your chicken and and then pat it dry. Yeah. So 
every chicken, every turkey, you have to presume that it's that it's contaminated with salmonella or campylobacter, another bacteria that also could cause human illness. And it actually causes about is the second leading cause of human illness in the United States is this bug campylobacter. Um, what happens when you wash something in your, you know, mm-hmm. in your, in your sink is that the water sprays out and that water could contain salmonella. So it's, it's really better just to, you know, take the chicken immediately out of the bag with a pair of tongs and put it right into whatever it is you're going to mm-hmm. cook it and start cooking it. It's washing that, you know, it's better to use the heat to kill the bacteria as opposed to theoretically lessening the bacterial load by washing it. It's true. You can wash some of the salmonella off, but if you also spray it onto your kitchen counter, spray it onto, you know, your your rags, spray it onto other utensils, spray it onto food like lettuce or you know, carrots or whatever. The floor and the dog licks the yeah, floor. Yeah, yeah. So you got to pay attention to it. Um, so, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, I know that I'm not trying to make people be so freaked out that they can't enjoy cooking. But Too I late. Think, yeah, but I think <laughs> it's, yeah, I know. But I think it's it's just one of those sort of things where, you know, you have to sort of understand a bit what are the risks and who are the risk groups, you know? There's a huge drive for uh, raw food for dogs now, you know, in the refrigeration yeah. and pet stores. How do you feel about that? And has there been known cases? Have you handled any cases regarding dog foods? So I don't represent dogs, but I do represent. They probably don't pay well, right? <laughs> so they're not, unfortunately, you know, although everyone loves their dog, the, uh, the law presumes dogs are like what they're worth as opposed to what they're emotionally worth. So it's really not, you know, uh, if you lose Fido, the golden retriever, even though he's, you know, your best friend, it's not worth much more than the $400 you paid for it or $2,000 you paid for your dog. Um, and so, but the risk about, uh, uh, the risk with raw food, it's the same for the dog as it would be for, you eating raw hamburger or raw chicken. It's so the same risk. Why don't coyotes and wolves get foodborne illness? Well, they probably do. Okay. Yeah, they probably do. It's just we probably don't pay as much attention to the, we'll you do know, the autopsies. Yeah. So, yeah. they. they but, you know, I mean, a lot of has to do with, um, you know, genetics. Um, you know, probably wolves and coyotes and cougars can attend. You know, they have different sorts of, you know, bioflora in their guts. Gut bio. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, I'm learning a lot. Um, Depressed you. you know, I'm scared say. to eat anything. <laughs> um, do grains, besides, you know, you said something about flour, but like rice and oats and, and grains and stuff like that, is that something I need to worry about? Because I'm a big chia and flaxseed guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know peanuts have mold yeah, sometimes. So, and- so I've had I've had outbreaks of salmonella linked to uh, uh, chia seeds and flax seeds that go into drinks because these are raw agricultural products. I mean, they're grown outside, you know, organic. Either <laughs> you know, and they're 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 not. You don't see outbreaks all the time. 
but there have been outbreaks linked to you know chia seeds uh, and other sesame seeds. Um, but really, the most kind of the more interesting to me anyway, the interesting uh, problematic is is like raw flour that you you know buy in a ten pound bag and mm-hmm. it's not pasteurized and but people don't think about it. I had an outbreak once where it was linked E. coli outbreak linked to people making uh, homemade Play-Doh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so I yeah. mean. The preschools do it all the time yeah, with yeah, the yeah. flour. And you kind of think about it. It's like, you know, I mean, why why wouldn't you make homemade Play-Doh? But there's a good reason to not make homemade Play-Doh. Okay. So. There's your second warning, Podcastville. Don't eat <laughs> Play-Doh. Um, should probably wrap this up for you because you are a busy man. I want to inform everybody about this book, Poison, by Jeff Benedict, that you were so kind to bring in a copy for me. Um, I've looked into Jeff a bit prior to uh, finding this book and such. Um, there's a chance that this might be turned into a movie. Well, actually, it's a movie in the can, right? Yeah, there's uh, Netflix. Just, Netflix is going to put it out probably June, July. We've been filming it. Really, for the during during the pandemic, um, you know, both here in Seattle, Bainbridge Island, um, uh, the opening scene everybody will really like uh, is uh, you know a um, a drone view of the ferry coming into Seattle, and then it swoops in, and there I am standing on the top of the ferry. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty funny, but um, yeah, no, it's uh, I think they're going to be putting it uh, in. Um, the uh, Tribeca Film Festival, and then it's going to, after that, I think it's going to hit Netflix. So, and hopefully we'll have a a, a showing here um, at uh, the Linwood Center. So Historic Linwood Theater. Yeah. What's your involvement in, in the book and the movie? Just, uh, you know. Main I'm, character? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, I'm sort of the, the through line uh, in both the movie and in the book, uh, primarily because... It's not so much the 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 book is all about the Jack in the Box case. Uh, the movie, the documentary, really more follows. Um, you know, has a, you know probably a fifth of it is about the Jack in the Box case, but then it's kind of a flu, a through line through the course of the last thirty years of you know litigating food cases and some of the work that I've done you know, in Congress and, you know, uh, trying to fix the problem. So it's a, uh, and then also what the industry has done. There's a lot, there's a lot of detail, a lot of people interviewed. So you must be proud of how you've helped shape the industry a bit. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a excruciatingly slow process. So it's sometimes sort of mind numbing. Um, There's a, uh, years ago, it's probably maybe even ten years ago. Um, Frontline did a, a story. Uh, it's called "Trouble with Chicken," and it was a really hard-hitting documentary about how you know messed up the chicken industry is with respect to salmonella and how messed up the government is in regulating it. And it was such a hard-hitting, powerful thing. I thought, oh, absolutely, this is going to fix it. You know, people are going to be so shocked. But then to think about it, you know, 11, 12 years later, we're sort of still fighting it. We've made some progress. Um, the USDA 
just listed salmonella as an adulterant in one product. So it's like we've it's not like we haven't made progress. It's just so damn slow. It's that's the thing that frustrates me. And you know, I just turned sixty five. You know, I have a few good fights left in me to keep at it, but you know, change is slow. It, it's really slow. The human, adoption, human humans are difficult to get them to, you know, do the right thing without oh. getting hit in the head with a two by four several times. Yeah, we're so set in our ways yeah. and so not open to new ways of thinking. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, and then the politics of everything. It's like you know you. You know, you can't do it because, you know, the Democrats are in charge. You can't do it because the Republicans are in charge. Or you can't do it because it's a presidential election year or it's coming up on the midterm elections. There's always some reason that you can't do something. And yeah. or you know, the bureaucracy will go nuts if you do something. And, um, yeah, it's, frustra- it's frustrating. It's Just frustrating. Just watching um, Spurlock's movie about the chickens, referencing that again. I was surprised at how the government controls agriculture mm-hmm. with their small loans and mm-hmm. they just it's basically they're making slaves out of the farmers in a lot of ways where you have to get subsidies because you can't turn a profit and then you have to get small loans to continue on and then there's the payback for it which you can never pay it back because it's not an industry that really makes money, it loses right. money. Right. And that way we can get our groceries cheaper, but yet we're still right. paying into the taxes, which is now the government then takes and pays to the farmers, but in a crooked way. And then to see the bastardization of chickens where it's like 12 weeks, they're steroid chickens with heavy breasts that they can't even walk. They fall down. They're yeah. susceptible to so much disease. Right. And, um, just maintenance of just the chickens dying on a daily basis. And then, like I said, a chicken can have cancer and it still makes it into your bag of chicken at at the grocery store. Yeah. Unless it's visible, you know, they usually can catch it, but you know, they've even increased the, the cook, the uh, line speed in a lot of these fat in these factories where, you know, these chickens are whizzing by at 120 of them a minute. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody can look at a chicken like they you know, if it's, you know, it's just not done. So, you know, a lot, there's a lot of testing that's done, but they still, they still don't have an incentive to not send us salmonella tainted chicken. And I completely agree with you. You know, we spend billions and billions of dollars with subsidies to farms. Um, and then it's just this cycle that happens where, you know, I think, you know, I look at, I, I just, I keep going back to how, successful, you know, making E. coli an adulterant in hamburger was, you know, to change the dynamic. And it really was making one rule applicable to everybody. And it just ultimately changed people's behavior. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I may have sued a few (laughs) companies along the way to fix it, but. Oh, big ones. ConAgra and Jack in the Box and Wendy's. Cargill. So, Yeah. But there's more to do, and you know I think that um, even there, even there are times where I feel like we're not making progress, and then you know I get a call uh, last week that the 
FDA commissioner wants to talk to me on the phone this coming Friday about some of my proposals to reorg the FDA. So who knows? Maybe maybe the guy will listen, you know. I don't have huge hopes, but you know maybe that's just the thing that tips him in the right direction and you know we can actually make some progress or at least tips him 10% of the way there and then somebody else can pick up the baton next year, you know. So you can pass him my phone number and yeah. I'll give him a piece of my mind and Good. then say, "Hey, you got the wrong number." And <laughs> have him call you later. <laughs> After I get it all off my chest, so um, how how do we pick people to run the FDA? Um, it's you know, usually picked by you know the head of health and human services. Um, you know, the president usually obviously staffers. Um, uh, during the Obama administration, um, I was uh, considered to be. Undersecretary of Food Safety for the USDA. Um, it's a, it's a not a cabinet level position, but it's a you had to be Senate confirmed, and so I went through the whole process of, you know, background checks and FBI and whatnot, and uh, uh, then didn't get the job because, you know, the industry and some senators were like, no way, we're not going to let him you know, run food safety. We can't have that guy do that. And so, you know, I was willing to like give up that. That was the height of my, you know, legal career, you know, in 2008, 2009. And I was willing to give that up to serve for a couple of years to sort of, you know, change, change the dynamic. And, but it didn't happen. And that was in a, an administration. If you, if I couldn't get the job in the Obama administration, I'm certainly not going to get it in any of the following administrations. So, yeah, I don't really like, well, I do. I like talking politics. Yeah. yeah. Tell me you had an inflatable oh. Trump <laughs> at your office. That's what it first made me go. Whose office is this? Um, oh yeah. Beautiful location too. Um, Next to High Life, Chopsticks. Uh, and the cops, in the cop shop. That's great. I, I feel quite safe there, yeah, so, at least for a while. So, <laughs> so. You're the policeman, police yeah. station neighbor. Yeah. Um, great location, but you also have a place out in Seattle as well. Yeah. But you got high visibility there. You want to yeah. know why I got the, put the chicken up? Yeah, so, I do. So. Um, chicken Trump. Chicken Trump. So. Um, I was rehabbing from a knee replacement. And so I was at home, I was at home and I was watching way too much cable TV as my wife will tell you. And it was like very, the very beginning of the Trump administration. And some artist had uh, on the ellipse outside the white house had gotten this giant blow up chicken that looked like Trump. And the idea behind it was that he was too chicken to release his taxes. And I thought that was just really funny. And so I contacted the artist and he said, well, this is the only one I made. And I'm like, you got to, you know, do you have plans? And he was like, well, yeah, we sort of do. And, and I said, I'll buy some plans. He goes, no, I'll give them to you. So I then found a company in China <laughs> to make a Trump chicken for me and they shipped it to me and, and it came 
it came in two parts. One was the blower to blow up the chicken. And the other one, it was like in an egg shaped thing that was like maybe like two feet tall, but that would be around. And then you cut into it and it uh, out popped this, you know, mylar chicken. So I had it for a long time on in front of my house on the water side. Yeah, I thought I saw it yeah. on the water. <laughs> so, so, so I had it that way, and, and apparently, and it got lots of comments on the Bainbridge Islander, including somebody saying that that chicken needs a Second Amendment, uh, you know, solution. So my wife goes, "Why don't you take it down?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So anyway, I took it down for a while, and then when I leased the space uh, where we're at, I decided it was the run up to the. 2020 election and i just you know i wanted to have my first amendment opportunity so <laughs> so I, I i had it up there for a long time and then um you know when the election went the way that i was hoping it would um uh, i spray painted fired on it and but eventually i took it to the dump so hopefully i won't have to resurrect it so <laughs> what do you mean you absolutely have to it's coming back up in two years uh, let's just hope not so so yeah, um, Donald, don't stick sick your people on us, but yeah. we're just, ha just yeah. having some fun here. Yeah, and uh, well, Bill, it's nice to um, have a chat with yeah, you. Yeah, it's great to, to meet you, and and thanks for having me on. And um, you know, it's a great. Uh, this is a great facility here at the barn. It's really it's cool. I didn't I didn't realize they had a a radio studio here as well. Yeah. So welcome to the gloom tomb. Yeah, not nice. much color in here. Yeah, but, but it's uh, good. It's quiet. So I, I built a, a Zoom studio in my little office because uh, I do so much. It's yeah. not quite as, but it's it's. I have a boom mic and a real nice camera, and then I have a, a big screen TV behind me. I can put it anything behind me I want, and so it Very looks cool. looks like a TV studio uh, as best as Zoom studios can look. So because well, I do a lot of that, trying to uh, get some cameras in here and. Uh a couch and make this more livable yeah, space swing, for everybody. Come, come down, come down and, and see what I did. And you, I think you might want to think about lease, lease out your place. Well, no, no, you <laughs> can just, you know, find out. I'll, I'll give you the dude that built it for me. So nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having some cameras in here and upgrading the studio. Yeah. And, uh, that takes money podcast will. So don't forget to support the bystander <laughs> podcast on Patreon. Um, it is appreciated. Bill, thank you for your time. Thanks. Marler and Clark is your law firm. Poisoned is the book by Jeff Benedict, which is coming out on Netflix here shortly. I wish you all the best, Bill. Thank you Thanks. for your time. Thanks. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. Mm -hmm.